Morning. How are you guys doing? That was pretty weak, all right. I think there's more coffee in the back if you need some. Man. My name is Tim. I am here uh, from Portland, from Hinson Baptist Church. It is a pleasure, it is a privilege to be with you. Um, if this is your first time visiting, you and I have that in common. I mean, I've been hearing about the branch for some time now, and if anything, it's just good to put, you know, a, a face to a name, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's great. Thanks for having me. Uh, we, we pray for you guys regularly, and I hope you're encouraged by that, um, and we will continue to, to, to pray for you and be a partner with you in the gospel. Those who know me best know that I love a good movie quote. The best movies, in my opinion, tend to have the most quotable lines. One of the best lines comes from one of my favorite movies, Braveheart. Oh, uh, yeah. It's, so you, it's, maybe you've seen it, the story of William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, and it's his struggle to unite all of Scotland to fight, you know, tyranny from England. And it comes towards the end of the movie. Wallace is in prison. He's been captured, and he's awaiting certain torture and death. And someone comes to him and, and pleads with him, begs with him to plead for mercy. And this is what he says, and I will spare you my Scottish accent. Every man dies but not every man really lives. Oh, such a great quote. I mean, you could just feel the significance of the entire movie in that one moment. If he gives in right then, at the end of his life, it would discredit everything he's fought for. And now, even facing certain death, he doesn't back down. Like, it's just, it's epic. Yet it begs the question, what is it that you are living your life for? More importantly, is it worth dying for? It's an interesting question given the, the culture that we live in. It's, it's a culture where, um, where, where we're told that you are to live your best life now. You live your life, your way, for yourself. After all, hashtag YOLO, right? You only live once. And yet, isn't there this lingering desire to make one's life count for something far greater than oneself? To be a part of something grand, to make a difference, to impact the world. So live your life for yourself, but also, you know, find a worthy cause. And this is the cultural tension that we live in. You see, a worthy cause might be the battle cry, but there is this underlying ethos, this, this stronger undercurrent, if you will, in the culture telling you not to give yourself to that thing 
if it means forsaking a part of who you are. See, implicit in the ambition of giving your life to something greater typically means, you know, sacrifice, risk, giving, giving up your personal preferences. But it's this individual ethos that comes back and says, yeah, but don't, don't sacrifice your identity. Not at the risk of your personal freedoms. So the result is we end up choosing easier or lesser causes. Or we might pursue a great cause, but we just do it very cautiously, very skeptically. You see, the, the ambition, that, that pursuit of greatness doesn't go away. Instead, our ambitions aren't getting bigger or grander. They're actually getting smaller and more narrow. Ambition, as it turns out, acts sort of as a barometer of who we are, and it's based on what we do. As one theologian put it, ambition concerns our goals in life and our incentives for pursuing them. A person's ambition is what makes him tick. It uncovers the mainspring of his actions, his secret inner motivation. In other words, your ambition will determine how far you are willing to go to get what you want. So maybe a better question would be, what are your ambitions? What is the driving force behind what it is you do? Have you ever wondered what God thinks of our ambitions? Do you think he's impressed? Maybe you think he doesn't even care. And how would we know if he did? So this morning, you are continuing in a series in 1 Peter called Thriving in Exile. Peter is writing to believers living throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. He's writing to encourage them in their struggles, to, uh, to encourage them to persevere in the midst of their trials. And for our text this morning, there is one, if there's one main idea that I just want you to walk away with, just one big idea, it's this. Jesus is coming, and you've been saved by a holy God. Now live like it. Jesus is coming. You've been saved by a holy God. Now live like it. And we're just going to unpack this sentence in, in three points. One, Jesus is coming. Two, you were saved by a holy God. And three, now live like it. You, you might be helped if you keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter. I'm going to be referring back to those verses throughout this sermon. And as we move through the text, I hope that you will consider your own life. Consider your own ambitions. What would it mean for your ambitions to line up with God's ambitions? How do we know God's ambitions anyways? All right, point one. Jesus is coming. Look with me at verse 13. 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. It won't be this slow, I promise. Like, we'll take bigger chunks later on. Here, Peter is picking up where he left off. He, he has reminded these believers of, of, their, of God's faithfulness towards them having chosen them in verse 1, and then gives them new birth in verse 3. And this was according to what was prophesied by the prophets, verse 10. And all this is rooted in the reality of the resurrection of Christ. But here, he's now pointing forward to a future revelation of Christ. He tells them to be prepared for action and be sober-minded. In other words, stay focused. You know, they, they say that our generation is like the most distracted generation ever. Eh, it might be an exaggeration, but there might be some truth there too. We are easily distracted. And so Peter launches in and says, stay focused because there is more grace coming and it's coming with Jesus. Peter is aiming their, their hopes towards something outside of their circumstances. Not just at something, but, but rather at someone. See, the grace that's coming is coming with Jesus. So remember, Peter is writing to encourage these, these Christians in their trials and in, in their struggles. And when you're in the midst of a trial or you're experiencing suffering of any kind, you can easily feel isolated, you can easily feel lonely, or even abandoned. However, the hope of Christ's return means that the way things are will not always be the way things are. Christ has not forgotten them. He has not left them in their suffering. And that is true for us today. Christ has neither left you nor forgotten you. If Christ's power was proven in his resurrection and his faithfulness was displayed in salvation, then we can rest assured that he will be faithful in his promise to return. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Just let that sink in. You're going to see him. You're going to look him in the face. Jesus is coming. And he brings with him love and grace and mercy and redemption. And when he does, he will finally and fully gather all those that belong to him to himself. This is a hope that is worth our attention. It's worth our admiration. It's worth our aspirations. 
If you are a believer in Christ, this is the source or the basis of your ambition. This is not an impulse reaction or an impulse buy. No, this is not a one-time decision. This hope is meant to permeate throughout all that you do. For the Christian, our ambition's battle cry is, Come, Lord Jesus. The only thing is, we have no idea when. In fact, we're not meant to know. There's been blogs and ink spilled everywhere about the date and the time Jesus is coming back. They've all been wrong so far. Christ said himself in the Gospel of Mark, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. For a number of years, I worked at a relatively well-known, large-chained coffee shop. And um, about twice a year, roughly every six months, we would have this surprise audit. And we didn't know when it was coming. And so we would, like, go through drills. We would, we would rehearse things. We would train on, you know, habits and good behavior. And we would clean like crazy. And then, like, it didn't matter. Like, uh, whenever the, uh, the auditor would show up, like, like, deer in headlights, like, what do we do? Uh, ah, just wash your hands and don't touch anything. That's... <laughs> See, if, if we were waiting for that moment, it was too late. No, it, it actually kind of drove a lot of what we did and why we did it. It, it, it was a basis for much of our training. See, in a similar way, we are to... Be prepared, be active, sober-minded. Living in the light of the grace that is going to come with Christ at his revelation. So Christian, let me ask you. Do you in fact long for the return of Christ? Do you read the scriptures with anticipation? Do you, do you long to know Christ and to be reunited with him? Or do you find yourself like me, easily distracted? It's so easy to be distracted in the middle of the busyness of day-to-day -day life. And after all, we don't know when Christ is coming. So how can we possibly expect to wait and maintain this ambition to see Christ in his return. This leads me to our second point. You've been saved by a holy God. Look, look with me again in 1 Peter, starting, um, starting verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call him father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways in inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for, ye, for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that now your faith and hope are in God. In this pursuit of a single-minded ambition of the coming grace of Christ, Peter tells us to be on guard against our passions, against our former ignorance. And honestly, to me, this, this, is, this seems like an odd turn for Peter. Um, after all, he's already told them that, the, that they're chosen, right? Uh, the, their reward is being guarded in heaven. Seems like it's a done deal. So why the worry about conforming back to former ignorance? See, I, I don't think Peter is like worried they're you know, going to lose anything or, or find themselves outside of God's grace. But rather, I think he's provoking the spirit of Christ that's in them. In their former ignorance, they were living as if God did not exist. They were ignoring the truth. And now he's warning them that not knowing what has been given to you and what has been revealed to you, do not live your life as if you are ignorant of God. Rather, understand who it is that has called you, a holy God. Friends, God is not like us. He's holy in all his ways. He's totally other than us, completely distinct from all of creation. He says to the prophet Isaiah, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He is infinitely greater than us, infinitely more wise. When Isaiah found himself standing before God in his throne room and saw the Lord seated in all of his glory, and just by the very voice of those calling out to each other, the, the threshold shook. Isaiah responded and said, woe is me. Literally, I have come undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To see the Lord face to face means to stand before the creator of the universe. Our creator, perfect in all of his glory. It is to see exactly how we measure up to his greatness. And I don't think he's that impressed. And yet, he still makes a difficult demand on our lives. He calls us to be holy. And he does it because he's holy. He's greater than us. How can we use his holiness as a basis for our own? 
Furthermore, he judges impartially based upon each one's deeds. So now there's this risk of like messing it up. How could we ever measure up? And if left to ourselves, what hope could we possibly have? See, we can never measure up because we're just like, we're not big like God and we're never going to be big enough. No, in our very nature, we are rebellious against God. You see, in our rebellion, we have rejected God as the rightful ruler of this world. And we've sought our own plans, our own initiatives, our own ambitions. We've decided to go our own way, to live our life now as we see fit, not according to the standards of a holy God. And if left to ourselves, we stand under the judgment of God for our sins. Our, our motives are not pure enough. And our actions simply are not good enough to undo that which was done. The holiness of God demands that he acts against sin. Sin cannot be left to go unanswered. And our sin simply cannot go unpunished. He simply would not be God if he did otherwise. And yet, in God's kindness, he's not left us to ourselves. He's not left us in our sin, but in fact has paid a high ransom for your life. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, it's true. God is not like us. But he did become one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. He was without blemish. He was the only one that could ever measure up to the standard of a holy God. Never sinning, never wavering, never giving up, relentless in his pursuit. Always obedient. It's in the perfect life of Christ that we begin to see the preciousness and the costliness of our redemption. The demand was high. And so the cost had to equal the demand. The demand God has, in fact, answered for our sin. He has answered our sin by giving up his own son. It was his death on the cross that, that Christ died for us. The death we deserve for our sin, that was his death was sufficient to meet God's demands for holiness. And now, and now you can put your faith and your trust in Christ. And by turning to Christ in faith, you belong to him. He gives you a new birth, a new identity, and with it comes new ambitions. You are one of those elect exiles. In other words, you are accepted 
by God. It's right here in the cross of Jesus Christ that we see the ambitions of a holy God. He would not settle for anything less than perfection. He's relentless. He is unwavering in his demand for glory. As one author puts it, ambition is willing to pay more than full price if that's what, it's, if that's what it takes. The full price for our redemption was the death of Christ. Do you want to know what godly ambition looks like? We have to look to the cross. Do you want to align your ambitions with that of Christ? You must turn to the cross. The truth is, I don't think God is impressed with our ambitions because he knows you need new ones. He knows you simply don't have what it takes to meet his standard, and so he gives you a new identity, a new hope. Except this new hope and this ambition is not based upon what you have earned and what you have done, but it's based upon what he has done for you. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. God could have chosen an easier cause, something that was, you know, slightly uh, less inconvenient, maybe. Perhaps, perhaps he would have pursued his purposes in Christ, but, but maybe he could have done it with a little bit more caution, with a little more skepticism. God could have, but he didn't. He planned he prepared, and then he put the full weight of his sovereign authority to accomplish his plan. I mean, just look at the breadth that God was willing to go from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, all the way through the cross and into eternity future. And now, so with this holy God, how do we live? What do we do? Our ambitions roused by the revelation of the coming Christ, our identities now secure in God's plan for us and his purposes of Christ. So now what? And our third point, now live like it. Live like Jesus is coming. Live like you've been saved by a holy God. Look with me in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that is preached to you. Once again, our, our, our new birth, having been born again, it's, it's sort of the grounds by which we move ahead. You see, the gospel tells us more than what it means to be saved. Now, the gospel tells us how to live, how to grow in faith and grow in Christ. And here, Peter bases that ability to love one another on the effect that the gospel has on their life. 
Now, first, this, this phrase, like having purified your souls, it, it, it could be a reference back to verses 6 and 7, where, where, their, where their trials and their faith were tested as by fire. So it's almost like to say that their tested genuineness of their faith has, in fact, been made pure. It's been, it's been tested. It's, been, it's true. It's withstood the trial. And now they, they use their obedience for themselves. No, rather, to love one another. For all that we've seen in God's redemptive plan, for all that God has done for you as an individual, he now aims our attention to one another. To the branch, he aims your attention to each other. To love one another and then do it even like with good intentions from a pure heart. See, brotherly brotherly affection, sincere brotherly love, loving one another, this this is family language. This this is defining a community. Not just a community of strangers, but a community of family members. I think he's describing the household of God. So what does it mean, Branch, for you to love one another? See, I think how you love one another actually draws a direct line to what you really believe about the gospel and what you're really willing to do in light of it. You were not saved to be a lone soldier, a solo Christian. You were created for community. And that community where we most apply this verse, where we love one another, is within the community of the church. Real love, lasting love, always comes with a commitment, an action. I think there's this fear that if we commit to something, then that deadens our love for it. Ask any married couple in the room, Did your wedding vows mean anything to you? Of course they did. See, the commitment heightens our love for one another. So consider what it means to commit to one another. When I was a freshman in college, I was leaving a church that I loved. I was moving away, and... Uh, I was in a new town, so that means a new church, and I, so I grew up in Texas, and so there's like one on every corner, so it just, you know, takes a while. So I was making the rounds, and one week I was visiting a college Sunday school class. <laughs> How old school is that sentence, yeah? And the teacher, he was pretty good, you know, he had a lot of great things to say, I don't remember what he talked about, but I remember how he ended. (laughs) And in fact, he said something like, you know, every year we see this happen. Tons of you come in, you hang around for a while, and then 
and then like, we don't know what happens to you. And then he encouraged us this, wherever you're at, three weeks from now, whatever church you're in, just join it. You can't do it by yourself. So just, just wherever you're at, just join that church. That's exactly what I did. The church that I was at, I had some friends there, this is where I'll join. And I was only there for a year. I actually ended, you know, transferring back closer to home, back to my, the, the same church that I just came from. But it, 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 was, that, it was that commitment, it was, that, it was that, that love for one another that I was known by this community of believers. And I got to know them, and they got to know me, and I was, by God's grace, I was able to grow some. Some of you again, might be here for the first time. Maybe some of you have been coming here for a while. What would it look like for you to commit to this church, to a church, any church? Our love for Christ translates into our love for one another. See, I our section ends with this, this wonderful exhortation on the Word of God. It's, it's what's abiding, it's what's enduring. And I think we're meant to walk away wondering how can we invest in that which is the most lasting? What is eternal? The word of God is eternal. So invest, spend time, make a commitment to the word of God. What is eternal? God's people, the church, it's eternal. Invest big in each other. Spend big for the kingdom because that's eternal. Jesus is coming. You've been saved by holy God. So live like it. Live as obedient children of God. Liz, live as if Jesus is coming. Live like you've been saved at a high cost. Live like you've been brought from darkness into life. Live like you will forever live with God. Live like you will be with God's people forever. Live like the gospel matters. Live like the gospel changes. Begin by asking you a question about what you're living your life for and your ambitions. You know, it's, it's true. We are an ambitious group of people. But I think when stacked up next to the holiness of God and the greatness of God, our missions just don't match up. We need new ones. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. 
And it's true that everyone dies. But it's even more true for those in Christ, we will live. We will live with each other. We will live with him. We will really live. Let's pray.